Point of clarification from last week. Uh, we are going through the process of improving all of our media uh, as we shared during our vision. One of our uh, things we're hoping to do is to reach wider with the gospel of Jesus. And in doing that, we're wanting to uh, significantly improve and uh, our media and develop new ways of media so we can connect with outsiders, people who don't know Jesus. And so I was listening to um, the sermon from last week because we're trying to improve the quality of our uh, sermons on podcasts so you can listen to them during the week or share them with friends. And I realised that I said something that I shouldn't have said. Um, so one of the things that I said, and I'll clarify it because the point that I was making was true, but the words that I said weren't true. So I said, uh, if we deny Jesus, he won't deny us. And as I was listening to the podcast, I thought, hang on a second. The Bible actually says the opposite to that. The Bible says, if we deny Jesus, he will deny us. And it says that in uh, 2 Timothy uh, 2 verse 12. Now, of course, that's a bit, bit confusing because then in uh, the Gospels, we see that Peter denied Jesus three times, didn't he? And yet Peter was actually restored by Jesus and was the chief of the apostles and the one who was doing the primary role of preaching and leading in the church in Jerusalem. And so... In order to clarify that, I just want to say that, yes, if we fully deny Jesus, he will deny us. But if we repent, he will forgive us and restore us to himself. So uh, let me pray now, as I've made that point of clarification, and let us turn now to Jesus. Look, we thank you that uh, even though many times many of us have denied you, if we come to you in repentance, you will forgive us. Uh, you will restore us like you did with Peter and you will draw us near. Well, Jesus, as we come to now consider this text uh, in Gethsemane uh, about, uh, Lord, this um, deep temptation that you faced and the agony that you experienced, the struggle that you had, and yet the victory that you won, we pray that you would make this the picture that we have in our minds when we face temptation. Lord God, I ask that you would open our hearts this morning to your word, to the truth of what you've done. Open our hearts to receive how you are working through the scriptures in the world and in our lives and that we will make much of Jesus as we consider this text together and we pray this in his name. Amen. So uh, as I shared in my prayer, um, this text is absolutely fascinating because Jesus faces the greatest temptation that really anyone has ever faced he faced the greatest suffering that anyone will ever face in his time uh, and he began that during Gethsemane. Now I want you just to think for a moment of the most significant temptation that you've ever had. If you're a Christian person that would be a temptation to sin against God. If you're not a Christian you might want to consider the uh, something that you've done that you know that was wrong and the immediately preceding time to that when you're wrestling with, should I do this, should I not? That's called temptation. And everyone has faced this to differing degrees, but it's true that all of us have faced this. And I want to tell you that the only way that you will be able to overcome facing great temptation in your life is when the picture that we have here of Jesus facing great te temptation becomes real to you. So when you face temptation, I want you to think about what Jesus did here in this text. And as we go through it, my prayer and my hope is that this comes alive for you 
so that as you personally experience temptation and see what Jesus endured, you too would have the strength in him, through faith in him and trust in Jesus to endure. So there's three things I want to tell you really about and how we face temptation with Jesus. And it really follows the three prayers that Jesus has in the text. And so the first uh, prayer is a prayer of struggle. A prayer of struggle. The second that we'll cover is a prayer of agony. The third is a prayer of courage. So let me begin. A prayer of struggle. Now in the text we see that there's a couple of different groups struggling here. There's the disciples who are struggling with their own temptations and Jesus struggling with his own temptation. First let's have a look at the struggle of the disciples. So if you have a look in the text there, Jesus tells them to, you know, sit here uh, with me while I pray. So to keep watch and then he goes, Jesus goes and prays and then comes back and what are the disciples doing? They're asleep. So they've actually you know, given in to ordinary human bodily temptation, which is when you're tired, you sleep. But interestingly, Jesus also says, he tells them to watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. There is something worse than just the ordinary bodily temptation that they're facing now to sleep and that is a temptation to deny or abandon Jesus. Now, I think both of these are tied together, right? The, the reason why we sin is because our bodies desire our own wills, not God's. That's the basis of temptation and the basis of sin. Temptation, of course, is the feeling or the experience of wanting or desiring in ourselves to do something that is against God's law. And sin is going through. But in the text we see a real comparison because on the one hand the disciples are you know, giving in to this idea of uh, the bodily temptation, the temptation to sleep and we'll see soon that they'll give in to the temptation to deny or abandon Jesus. And we see that they also share in this sorrow that Jesus had when he was sort of overcome and his, and his soul was troubled. But we also see uh, that there is probably something more going on here in the text. That as we consider, you know, that we all experience personal temptations of various kinds, this is a slippery slope towards actually turning our hearts away from Jesus. Now, there's probably a few different temptations that we face commonly uh, in our time. Uh, the first is, uh, that I want to consider here is comfort. Now, and that's the one the disciples were facing. They literally preferred their own sleep to being obedient to Jesus. So they wanted to be comfortable rather than obedient to him. Now, comfort is a very interesting internal desire. And if we give ourselves over to it, it will actually lead us into sin. For example, laziness is a result of wanting too much comfort for ourselves. Oversleep, I guess we see in the text, when they should be awake, is an example of uh, giving ourselves over to comfort. What about overeating or overdrinking? We, we call this comfort food when we eat a lot or when we drink, wanting to feel more comfortable. We drink more and more and it becomes a nightly event or you know, we drink until we get to a state of comfortability every night or we take other medications or even illicit drugs and those kinds of things. Again, to increase our comfort levels. When we give ourselves over to these things, they tend to actually control us. And so rather than 
us uh, you know, getting comfortable at different times, which can be a good thing, we begin to be ruled by comfort and that temptation takes over. Another uh, temptation that many of us face is, of course, the one uh, for you know, sexual intimacy. Everyone at various times faces that desire. Now, of course, that can be a good thing in the right context of marriage. But it can also, if we give ourselves over to it, and again, saying, my will, not yours, be done to God, then that can lead us into sin. We're going to lust, adultery, and sexual immorality. And I suppose the other one here that we see, which will happen soon after this, is the temptation of fear. Fear of people, fear of suffering. And that leads to denial for some, apostasy, uh, or indeed complete betrayal, we see with Judas. So any of these ordinary human temptations can lead us to deny Jesus. If we give ourselves over to them, we will end up saying, my will be done, not yours to God. So that's the struggle of the disciples we see in the text. But Jesus is the focus here. Jesus is the one who is truly having the most intense struggle of his life. Notice that Jesus even prays that this cup of suffering, this cup of God's wrath would pass over him. You know, we know that he's going to the cross, right? This is the night before he's going to the cross. We know that Jesus is going to pay for sin by his death on the cross. And yet even Jesus in his humanity doesn't want to do it. But he submits to the Father's will. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. He said, For much as his human nature shrank from the cup, still more did he shrink from any thought of acting contrary to the Father's will. So we see this real struggle, this wrestle that Jesus is having with not wanting to endure the suffering that is to come and yet wanting to obey the will of the Father. Now, there's a couple of things going on that I want to point out to you. One is that Jesus tells his disciples how to handle temptation. What does he say? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So pray. And what is Jesus doing to overcome the temptation that he's facing of not going through with his sacrificial death on the cross for sin? What is he doing? He's praying. And so this is really like step one. If you are facing increasing temptation to sin or any temptation to sin, you need to pray. Like Jesus did. Jesus is a good example for us here. And it and no, it will be a struggle. It was a struggle for Jesus and he endured it. And it was a struggle for the disciples and they failed at it. But we need to know that there will be a struggle there. That is our chief way of engaging with temptation. Our first way, the step one, Now, there's a few other lessons that we need to take from Jesus' struggle here. Firstly, that a temptation to sin is far stronger than we think. So, I mean, these disciples had spent, what, three years with Jesus. They spent a lot of time with him. They'd heard his teaching. They were his closest people. Even, you know, the the chief three, Peter, James and John, they were closest to Jesus at this particular time. And yet they all fell asleep. They all gave in to their bodily desires, didn't they? And they would all fall away eventually, Peter most of all. This tells us, and and Jesus says it himself, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now he's talking about human spirit there. 
It's saying that you might be a willing person to realize that your bodily desires are real. And if you just are, you know, a sort of able and willing person and you think you can get through this through your own willpower, you will fail. If those closest to Jesus failed in their own strength, you too will fail. And so we must realize that temptation to sin is far stronger than we think. And I guess, like, in addition to that, but it's more of a sub-point, a willing spirit does not mean you will overcome temptation. Having a really, you know, strong set of self-will does not mean that you'll be able to overcome temptation. Sometimes we think that. Sometimes we can just work harder and then we'll sin less. Or work harder and we will be better. It doesn't work that way with God. In fact, often that just leads to the sin of pride. It becomes a self-defeating thing. You know, even those that were closest to Jesus, those again, those uh, three, Peter, James and John, on a previous mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration, they'd seen Jesus in his glory. He'd been more revealed to them than before, so that they'd had a huge spiritual experience, right? Literally a mountaintop experience of Jesus in his glory, and yet they're on another mount, the Mount of Olives, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And even with that great spiritual experience, they cannot do it themselves. So Jesus, what is his instruction? This is another lesson. He says, watch and pray to overcome temptation caused by a weak flesh. That is, when you're in the midst of temptation to sin, you need to pray. You need to be watchful in it. Don't just think, I can willpower my way out of this. You will likely sin your way out of it. And sin, of course, is something that you give it an inch and it will take a mile. Lastly, something that we can learn from Jesus' struggle there is that Jesus himself desired some company and encouragement. Notice he asks them to stick with him, to watch with him. Notice that even Jesus wanted encouragement. How much more do we need encouragement from others to overcome temptation? Like, and temptation is many and varied, right? From our own desires and Satan enticing it. How much do we need Solid friends around us. If Jesus did, how much more do we? People who know what we're really going through. People who are honest with about our temptations. I mean, no one's going to pray for you and watch with you unless you're honest with them about the things that really tempt you. So, and what context do we do that in? When we, we grow in, in our friendships with other Christians, perhaps? You know, for those of us who you know, are part of church, it's been a part of one of our midweek groups, our gospel community. So we actually share what's really going on in our lives. This is something we can all be involved in. And it's certainly something that we can take from Jesus' example here, that we need people who will watch and pray with us so that we will not be given over to temptation. Okay, so this is the struggle that Jesus went through. The struggle that he prayed through. You know, He asked that the cup would be taken from him, but he also said, not my will, but yours be done. And this is the struggle that we face too with temptation. But secondly, we see that there is a real agony that Jesus experienced. And we don't actually get the word agony in this text, we see it in the other Gospels. But there are significant signs 
here that Jesus is going through something which is really belief. So what are the signs of Jesus' agony? Well, firstly, we see Jesus actually asking for help. Have you ever seen Jesus ask for help or support from his friends in other places in the Bible? You don't, you don't really see it. You know, why did Jesus need his friends here, but not here? I mean, it seems that when Jesus is preaching, he's got a bit of a take it or leave it stance. I mean, they're either on his side or they're against him, Jesus says. It says when Jesus was preaching, many of his disciples walked away and there was only a few left. I mean, Jesus would preach and divide people. And yet here, he desires company. Here he asks them to stay and watch with him. There's something different is going on here as opposed to the whole of Jesus' life before. Something distinct and something unique. That's the first sign. The second is that Jesus was in deep distress. Listen to his words. Verse 38. My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Jesus is so filled with sadness, he could even die. Now, I'll comment on that a little bit later, but um, there's a, uh, one of the uh, theologians uh, who comments on this text, his name's B.B. Warfield. Uh, he's got a book called The Emotional Life of Our Lord, and this is what he writes about a couple of the Gospels. He says, Matthew and Mark almost exhaust the resources of language to convey to a some conception of our Lord's agony. As in between the Gospels, and the words that are used, they, they run out of words to use to explain that Jesus is going through something that is so sorrowful, so you know, filled with sadness and like deep grief in his heart that it's even hard to explain with human language. There's no words left for it. And yet the strange thing about this is is that Jesus has already faced much opposition from people. I mean, like, Jesus is the one who stands up to the religious leaders of the time and calls them snakes and like, broods of vipers. Jesus is standing up to the religious leaders, you know, the Romans, the government of that time, and saying, I am the king. You know, the Christ, the Son of God. Like Jesus is like full of courage and full of boldness ordinarily, and yet here he is in utter agony. He's experiencing something emotionally that we've never seen him experience before. Uh, we also see another sign, Now, this isn't actually in um, Matthew's Gospel, it's in Luke's Gospel, that he endured extreme physical stress. You know, it says that he was like sweating profusely, almost like big uh, drops of blood were coming off him. Now, uh, commentators have various thoughts on this because blood is mentioned. It is actually um, medically possible to sweat blood if you're under extreme stress. It's not clear whether the text says he sweated actual blood or it seemed like big drops of blood that were coming from him. But either way, we know that Jesus was praying so intensely he was going through such agony in his prayer that he was, he was just drenched with sweat when his disciples saw him again. Now, again, this is unusual. 
This is the same Jesus who, you know, was sleeping during a storm when he was in a boat. He was sort of on the inside of the boat. And all the disciples were afraid that, you know, they're going to die. And Jesus was sleeping. Totally fine. Calm amidst the storm. That was Jesus' ordinary temperament. And yet here, it is not so. Jesus was under extreme physical stress. I mean, I mean, you even look at like how Jesus, you know, when he wept and got angry when his friend Lazarus died and he saw the grief of Lazarus's family, even then, Jesus was not overcome. Even then, Jesus, you know, knowing that this would not lead to death, you know, he had strength in himself and composure and called out for Lazarus to be risen from the dead. And the last sign that we see of Jesus' agony is what he mentioned. His sorrow led him very close to death. Did you know that sadness can actually kill you? You know, that those that are, um, you know, facing terminal conditions or potentially terminal conditions, their disposition makes a huge difference in whether they will live or die. Jesus is saying he's so sorrowful he could literally die even unto death. Again, medically possible. And he's there. He's at the very edge. So there's, like, there are signs here that Jesus is going through something un- almost unbearable that no one else has ever seen in his life up until this very point. So the signs of Jesus' agony, but there's, a, there's something troubling about this if you really think about it. Because we have many examples of people who endured, you know, significant suffering, were even killed, and yet agonised far less than Jesus. Uh, one of them was, was actually someone who uh, was a bit earlier than Jesus, a sort of a contemporary, if you will, was Socrates, the um, Greek philosopher. And, and those of you who know your history know that he died by taking a cup of poison. Like, so Jesus, you know, was about to take a cup of God's wrath. Uh, Socrates took a cup of hemlock, and this is um, what the writers who recorded what happened with Socrates, how he handled his, his uh, upcoming death. This is what it says. So Socrates, he took the cup of poison without trembling or changing his expression. He raised the cups to his lips very cheerfully and quietly drained it. And as his friends were so tearful that he was doing this, he told them to keep quiet and be brave. So Socrates, right? It's got like very little to do with Jesus. It was sort of before Jesus, a Greek philosopher. Even he seemed to face his upcoming death with sort of bravery and strength. Interestingly, uh, so just after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, and the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter five, we see that the disciples are sort of beaten and uh, you know, like publicly persecuted. In Acts 5.41 it says, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonour for the name. They're rejoicing amidst persecution and suffering for the sake of God. So on the one hand we see people who have nothing to do with the Christian faith able to handle extreme suffering. Uh, we, we see own followers handling things joyfully. Uh, and then even in our more modern times, the... Um, the Indian evangelist uh, Sadhu Sundar Singh spoke uh, during the 20th century 
uh, there were a number of Tibetan um, missionaries who handled their persecution and suffering in like joyful ways. You know, they were f- the, the who was flogged in persecution and had salt rubbed into his wounds afterwards, and yet his face shone with peace and joy. So another one that was literally sewn into like a yak skin and like encased him. And they, for three days, he was just left there. And then, but he was filled with joy. Everyone remarked, what is going on with these guys? There is something troubling because if Jesus' own followers and the, and the sort of bravest of humanity, who have little or nothing to do with Jesus, can face suffering and their own death with composure and grace, then something else is going on here. Jesus. Remember, Jesus mentions that uh, in verse 39, there is a cup that he is about to take. It's not a cup of hemlock like it was for Socrates. There is a different poison in this cup. What is the cup? Well, the Bible actually tells us that there is a cup of God's wrath which is due for humanity. God is a judge. God is a judge of sin. And God is the just judge of all the earth. And so he will deal with human sin. You know, when people give in to temptation, he will deal with that. And he will deal with it exactly right. Not too much, not too little. Exactly right. And what is the result of our sort of sin is death. And what is death? You know, without being a part of God's people, it is eternal separation from God. It is essentially, we say, not... Not your will, but my will be done. And God says, you can have your will for all eternity. He gives us what we want. So hell really is of our own choosing. And yet Jesus here is facing a cup of God's wrath. Jesus is facing hell itself for the sake of his people. That is what is going on here. That's the only explanation that the text gives to what is going on with Jesus, that he is about to take a cup of the wrath of God upon himself. And so why is he in such agony in this garden? Because he is beginning to experience separation from God. And it will reach its fullness and climax on the cross, but he is beginning to experience it himself. Jesus is going through of hell for all of humanity, for all the sin. He's taking the full weight of it upon himself. Notice that ordinarily, and this is not just true for Christianity, but almost every religion, if you're obedient to your religion, you're promised life. You know, if you do good, and we see this throughout the Bible, actually, the promise sticks that if you are obedient, you will get life. We see it particularly in the culmination book of the Lord Deuteronomy. It says, choose life and obey God. And yet here, uniquely across every religion and in particular across the Christian Bible, Jesus chooses full obedience to the and he gets death. Why? It's a bit of a conundrum until you realise what Jesus was doing. The conundrum is, 
How could Jesus be perfectly obedient to God his Father and do everything right and honour him and still express love and mercy to his people? How could Jesus make a way that our sins could be passed over and that our sins could be forgiven? That every time we've given in to temptation, that he could forgive us? How could he do that and show mercy and love to humanity whilst being obedient to God, the God of justice, the God who actually is going to deal with sin all over the world? And that is a, a wonderful thing because there is much evil in the world and God will deal with it. How can he love man and love God? The only way is that he would take the cup of God's wrath himself. That is the only way that Jesus could do it. And so we see here something unique. This is unique to Jesus' life even. That he is taking something upon himself which he has never experienced before. Separation from God the Father. Because that is what was due for you and me. He's receiving that upon himself. John Stott, who um, references uh, in his book, The Cross of Christ, quite a significant section, this uh, work that Jesus is doing in the Garden of Gethsemane. and gives those examples, actually, of uh, Socrates and the disciples and uh, the Indian evangelists. He also gives three points of application where he says, well, what does this mean? And Stott says this. He says, seeing Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane tells us that sin is far worse than we realise. Far worse than we realise. If we, if we realised how bad the result from our sin really was and how bad hell really is, we would flee a million miles. And yet most of our culture is designed to help us ignore the reality of these things. Did you know that during um, the, the first sort of Great Awakening when um, guys like Jonathan Edwards, um, Charles Wesley and um, George Whitfield were, were sort of you know, uh, preaching, uh, this is in the uh, 1700s, in the 1700s, people would, as these uh, you know, faithful men were preaching God's word and preaching about you know, these things, people would come, un, like, not under joy. You know, you imagine church services, generally people are hands raised and really excited and, and, you know, full of joy. No, people would come under terror, some of them. And, and it said some people's experience, and this thing wasn't just work, worked up by the preachers. In fact, um, Jonathan Edwards, you know, by all uh, examinations of contemporary preaching methods was terrible. He sort of he used to preach, like read his script like this and he had a sort of um, a candle that he used to read it and he couldn't even, like, you know, didn't use his voice very well apparently and yet people would be filled with terror as if they were on the very precipice of hell themselves. The very precipice. Because they caught a very small glimpse of the reality of sin. That was the first thing that Stott said. The second is that the love of God is far greater than we imagine. I mean, if sin is that bad for one person, imagine the whole world. And then imagine Jesus, who had never known sin, to come under 
the wrath for sin himself and be separated from his father. To take an eternity's worth of sin and separation upon himself. Literally, to come, like in the garden, he is on the precipice of hell himself. That is why he is in almost terror. Something we've never seen from Jesus before. That is why he is there. Why? Because of love. He's there because he is willing to do the Father's will because he loves humanity and so does the Father. It is almost unbelievable. And yet if we believe it, if we believe it, it will flood your life with joy. Unspeakable, the Bible says. The third thing that um, Stott tells us, this text reveals is that his grace is freer than we realise. Now, uh, again, notice in the text, the disciples, they slept. When Jesus said, watch with me and pray that you do not fall into temptation, what did they do? They slept and they fell into temptation. What did Jesus do alone? He struggled, he agonised, and he endured. What does this tell us? Jesus did the work that we could not. Jesus exemplified perfect obedience right up until his last breath. And even in his death, he was obedient to the Father by taking the cup. Even when he was literally on the precipice of hell, feeling the fullness himself of what was about to come, he said, not my will but yours be done. And so this doesn't tell us, be better, work harder. You can overcome temptation by being a better human being. No, it tells us that Jesus has done it. And if we take this picture here as our primary understanding of how to come overcome temptation by saying that Jesus won it, then our hearts will be filled with trust in him. You know the reason why you give in to temptation, and so do I? The reason that we sin and when that desire to do our will, not God's will, we we give ourselves over to that is because we don't trust God. We don't trust that his way is better than ours. Like that's, that's the simple basis of it. Why you sin is because you don't trust that God's way is better than yours. And yet we see in this text, Jesus, God himself, utterly trustworthy, willing to lay down his own preferences to experience the most terrible thing that anyone could ever experience and yet go through with it. I mean, how can anyone be more trustworthy than Jesus? When we take this into our hearts, what Jesus is doing here and what he will do on the cross for us, and we believe in him, that will change you. Because you will see that you you will struggle with temptation and you will fail at times. But you will see that Jesus endured and it will fill your heart with trust. You will see the agony and sometimes we feel agony under temptation's weight. And yet we will see that Jesus endured and so we can trust him. And the Holy Spirit makes this work that Jesus has done alive in our hearts. And so we say, yes, I will endure with him. All right, my third and last point 
is the courage that we see in the third prayer. And I'm going to make this really short for the sake of time. I want you to notice in the text that Jesus prayed the same thing again a third time that he had the second time. Jesus you know, from a, a prayer of struggle to a prayer of agony. And then he prayed the same thing again a third time. But by the third time, he came back to his disciples and he was ready. He had courage. He was ready to face this cup. And the cup was not the betrayal that he was about to go experience, the false accusations, the denial that he'd have from his own followers and his people. It was not the scourging that he would be whipped with, it would cause most people to die. It was not even the cross itself. You know, it was the, the worst uh, form of torture and execution the Roman and the, sort of the superpower of the time the Romans could come up with. It was even that was not what was filling him. It was being separated from his father. And he said, not my will but yours be done. So what does this tell you and I this morning? It tells us that we need this, the work that Jesus has done for us to be the chief thing in our mind when we face this. And if you haven't taken this truth into your heart, then you need to. So that you will not face what Jesus faced for you. So that you will experience the joy that Jesus was about to have. Did you know that um, the, the word Gethsemane, which it was sort of a part of the, of the garden in the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives was just outside of Jerusalem and Gethsemane was a part of that, um, that garden, olive grove, if you will, and it was called the oil press. That was, that's what Gethsemane means, the oil press. Literally, this, this is where they press the olives to produce the oil. Jesus was being pressed unbelievably. And yet the oil that he would produce, oil of gladness for his people. Why? Because Jesus endured so that we would be set free. So there's a pattern here. There is a struggle with temptation. You and I will both have it. There is an agony to temptation. You and I will have it. But Jesus took the brunt of it for us so that we might be set free from being ruled by sin and temptation. We'll have him work in our heart. You know, um, when my dad was battling with cancer, so before he died last year, so the, the year or so, 18 months before, it was very interesting to see him go through this pattern. Because there is a temptation when you're facing death, and my dad is a Christian, believes in Jesus. I say is because he's been promoted to glory. And so he's with Jesus now. But I saw this pattern, this struggle that when you face death, that it is what I believe real. And as, as cancer intensified, an agony that came over at times. And yet it was so interesting that I saw a peace and a courage follow that, an anticipation of glory that he had that is unique to those that believe in Jesus. And this is not just true for those that will face death, but it's true for all his people. That at the very moment, the darkest hour, there is light there available for you.
Uh, let me pray. I'm about the band up, and we're going to sing shortly.